Hello everyone and welcome to the Rethink Freedom podcast with Freedom United, a podcast dissecting modern slavery around the world with guests on the cutting edge of activism. On this episode, we take a deep dive into the systematic repression and forced labour of Uyghurs and other Turkic and Muslim people in China, one of the most serious modern slavery crises of our time. This state-sanctioned system of forced labour, orchestrated by China's government, traps vast numbers of Uyghurs and other Turkic and Muslim people in northwest China in a system of so-called re-education. Since 2017, around one million have reportedly been detained and subjected to egregious human rights abuses, including forced labour. With one-fifth of the world's cotton supply coming from the Uyghur region, much of the global fashion industry is potentially tainted by its forced labour. Former Freedom United campaigner Carlo Ladd discusses the Uyghur forced labour system's links to the global fashion industry with our expert guests, Rahima Mamut, Uyghur activist and programme director at the World Uyghur Congress, Johar Ilam, programme associate at Workers' Rights Consortium and the daughter of imprisoned Uyghur scholar Ilam Toti, Member of European Parliament Raphael Glucksmann and Chloe Cranston, Business and Human Rights Manager at Anti Slavery International. Wondering, Rahima, if you could tell us a little bit about the Uyghur region and give us some context on the situation that we're seeing there today. Thank you very much. Thanks for organizing this event, and it's an uh, honor for me to, uh, to be uh, with the, such distinguished panel. Um, so, uh, the Uyghur region, the Uyghurs call it East Turkestan, and it's a historical homeland for the Uyghurs and other Turkic Muslims. Um, in 1949, uh, the Communist Party uh, occupied the region, and in 1955, it was named so-called Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. However, uh, they never honored what it was promised under the Chinese constitution. Uyghurs subjected to systematic oppression and the SACP has carried out many massacres, rightist movement, cultural revolution, Baran massacre, Ulja massacre, and Urumqi massacre in 2009. And then since 2014, and it developed into what Canada's parliament declared as constitute genocide under the uh, Genocide Convention. So right now up to 3 million uh, people are interned in concentration camps. There is widespread slave labor, forced organ harvesting, forced sterilization of women, uh, with removal of nearly 1 million children from their families into uh, state um, orphanages, forbidding them speak uh, language, practice our own culture and tradition and our religion, and advanced digital surveillance and the biometric underpins that genocide. Simple acts uh, like uh, phoning relatives abroad, using WhatsApp, growing beard, owning a Quran, or pray, uh, praying results in arrest and internment. So the CCP's aim is, from their own words, break their lineage. 
break their roots, break their connections and their origins. So this is what is happening in my homeland at the moment. Thank you so much for that um, horrifying overview, Rahima. Um, Johar, perhaps you can lead, lead the discussion on to, um, to discuss the coalition to end forced labor in the Uyghur region. How did it come about? Where does it come in? And uh, what, are, what, are, what are we hoping to do? Um, thank you, Carwell. Um, as Ms. Rahima Mahmoud just mentioned, just talked about that, the situation of the Uyghurs are very concerning, extremely concerning. And that is why a group of human rights organizations have joined together and created a um, coalition. And this coalition is a very broad, diverse coalition with members from um, all over the world, from more than 35 countries, um, which includes Uyghur solidarity groups, investor groups, trade unions, and uh, human rights organizations. And so far, there is a, a, a solution that has been endorsed by more than 310 plus uh, organizations, um, the call to action. And the call to action was launched in July of this year uh, and has been um, uh, taking the lead from Uyghur groups and Uyghur diaspora groups around the world. And we all came together because we were seeing that, uh, we, we were seeing what a huge risk forced labor pose and um, in, in global garment supply chains, we wanted to respond to that. And that is why we de developed this uh, call to action. Thank you, Johar. Um, and I'd just like to remind everybody that one fifth of the world's cotton supplies estimated to come from the Uyghur region. So it is the, the risk for the global fashion industry is, is pretty vast. Um, Chloe, um, perhaps you can answer this question. Why do we need brands, why do we need fashion brands to exit uh, the region completely? What, what is stopping this, this issue from being solved with diplomacy? Thanks, Carlo, and thank you to Freedom United for inviting me. It really is such an honour to be speaking alongside such formidable figures of the Uyghur movement, so thank you for having me join them. Um, Rahima has really described the scale and the scope of the abuses and how horrifying it is. And what we're talking about is we're talking about forced labour at such a scale that there really is a risk in any workplace in the Uyghur region, whether we're talking about factories or an agricultural level and farms. This fact has been recognised by the industry, it's been recognised, for example, as well by the US government. Given the role of government, yes, of course, diplomacy is fundamental, and that's something we can't argue against. Governments need to be exerting influence and pressure on the Chinese government to end these abuses overall, and we need to be pushing for particularly in the UN. I'll leave the diplomatic side, though, however, to Mr. Glucksman, who I feel will be able to speak to that a bit better than I can. However, what is really key and really important to underline is we cannot rely on diplomacy alone. Even while governments may be being slow to act, brands have a responsibility to respect human rights in their supply chains and to ensure they are not profiteering from forced labour. And in some countries, this is actually a legal responsibility. And what companies need to be able to do is to reassure us as consumers that we aren't wearing products that have been made off the back of abuses of Uyghurs. For example, even what I'm wearing here today. 
As Carlos said, the horrifying and staggering figure is that one fifth of all cotton products sold globally could be made with cotton from the region. And there's a really near certainty that many of these products will be tainted with the forced labor. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about our everyday high street brand or whether we're talking about a luxury company. Further, a number of companies which we may buy products from from the high street or luxury have suppliers among their supplier base, which are major Chinese companies which are actually propping up the Chinese government's efforts to expand the forced labor system. So we have brands and retailers which are in supplier relationships, which companies are, which are very directly linked to the abuses. And brands, so they cannot just sit around and wait for governments to act. We don't know how long that will take. They have a responsibility to ensure they're not benefiting. And in the Uyghur region, the only way they can do this is by exiting the region. The scale and the scope of the abuses means that forced labor is so across the entire region that they just have to operate with the presumption that any products made in whole or in part from the Uyghur region could be tainted with forced labor. I'm happy to go into more detail about why we're very specifically calling for an exit in um, next questions as well. Thanks, Chloe. Um, I think that leads us very nicely on to a uh, uh, contribution from Mr. Glucksman. Um, clearly, the coalition, what the, from what the coalition has, uh, has put out there and what, from what we've been talking about, brands, need to take action, brands need to exit the region. So where does diplomacy come in and how can it be part of the solution? In your experience in the European Parliament, what's your perspective on the issue? Well, first, thank you so much uh, for inviting me and I'm very much uh, honored and uh, happy to be with you. Uh, you know, I think in terms of diplomacy, Uyghurs have fallen into a black hole and uh, especially when we speak about Europe, there is a shameful lack of consistency when it comes to defend their right to exist as a people. And the camp should be closed and, and Europe should be leading voice for closing them. But Europe is not. So as we speak, the pressure on the Chinese government is way too low. And um, there is no concrete steps taken by the uh, European leadership to uh, actually oblige the Chinese government to uh, stop these uh, horrific crimes against humanity. And so, of course, what we want European leadership to do is to take sanctions, individual sanctions against responsible of the, of the crackdown against Uyghurs, but also sanctions against companies using forced labor and, and, and slavery. And with 100 uh, MEPs, members of European Parliament, we have uh, signed a letter asking for a blacklist of Chinese companies using uh, uh, forced labor and slavery. And I don't know if you call it diplomacy, but uh, we need uh, very strong messages coming from uh, European and American and, and, and democratic institutions. And the first thing to do is to ban slavers from access to uh, the European market. It's still the biggest market in the world and, and China needs the access to the European market. So that's a leverage we have. But for that, we need to be very uh, coherent and consistent. And the first thing to do would be to ban any product 
coming from Uyghur cotton. Any uh, product coming from companies like Wafu in China using Uyghur forced labor, and any product coming from multinational companies, fashion brands, including European ones, using uh, uh, Wafu as a supplier, for instance. And, and this is the message we want. But until we have that, what we can do is to put pressure on the brands and use consumers, clients, to send messages to the brand. It's to, uh, as we all know, fashion brands, they have built their business model on two things. First is to look for the lower cost, so that's why they work with these suppliers. And second is their uh, image as a brand. So let's attack this image. That's our leverage. That's their actual uh, uh, Achilles, um, I don't know the name in English, Talon. But that's why these campaigns are so important. We need, we need actually Zara and other uh, 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 fashion brands to understand that at least cooperating with forced labor in China will have a cost to them. And, and for this, we need citizens to act. And that's why I think it's very important that we can coordinate our efforts in various countries in the world and to spread the message. That's the first thing. And then we might have diplomatic actions. But I think that first, the thing is to target the brands and to show that we have leverage on these brands and they have leverage on their suppliers. Thank you so much, Mr. Glucksman, and your support of the movement and the coalition in, in, uh, in Europe and in the European Parliament has really been um, indispensable. So uh, we are, we're very grateful for that. Um, so I, what I'm hearing is that you're, you're calling partly for consistency because the European Parliament has, has perhaps spoken out on um, other issues um, of exploitation. Um, and I guess maybe bouncing back to Chloe, Perhaps you could talk to us a little bit about how what's happening in the Uyghur region is different from, shall we say, more uh, commonplace supply chain exploitation or more well-known types of supply chain exploitation. Um, and how are the solutions different? Yeah, thank you, Carl. It's a really pertinent question, actually. Um, so as Anti-Slavery International, we, with our local partners and partners around the world, we work on forced labour around the world in many contexts. Forced labour exists in the UK, exists in Brazil, India, any context. And in most, most cases, in most countries, we would not be saying that companies should exit a region entirely or end all relationships with suppliers. That wouldn't be the practice we would actually promote. In most cases and contexts, what we would be saying is that brands and retailers need to be working really closely with their suppliers to address why forced labour is happening, to support workers, to be working with NGOs, um, so charities and trade unions, and for example, on the ground. That is the approach we normally push for in order to make sure that what happens is in the interest of the workers. The Uyghur region is a completely different scenario. As has been made clear, we are talking about state-imposed forced labour. This forced labour is taking place within an extensive system of surveillance and control. There's widespread restrictions and repressions on fundamental freedoms. There's no civil society. Rahima made very clear the, the level of atrocities we're talking about in the region. 
And we're talking about a scale of persecution that legal experts have stated may amount to crimes against humanity. And there's open legal opinion as to whether this can be defined as genocide. So a company can't take steps in the Uyghur region to try and deal with the forced labor and support workers. That simply is not credible. There's absolutely no credibility to such an argument. As an example, one way that some companies in other contexts may try and address forced labor is through the use of audits. So what audits are, for those of you less involved in industry space, is their factory visits where auditors will go into a factory and interview a worker and inspect conditions. They are very, very flawed in every single context and really generally in any context fail to actually identify forced labor, which is often very hidden. But in the Uyghur region especially, they have absolutely zero credibility. No Uyghur trapped in forced labor is going to be able to speak to an investigator about what is happening to them due to the level of persecution. And actually recognizing this in September, five well-known auditing companies stated that they would no longer audit factories in the Uyghur region. This was a really welcome development for us in the movement. Very ironically, and showing how flawed audits are, two of these companies had previously actually audited factories for Western companies in the region and allegedly found those abuses. Those two factories that have since have since actually been subject to US sanctions or import bans. So it just shows that the audits weren't working. And beyond audits, what else could companies do in the region, even if a company was to identify forced labor, there's nothing they can do to prevent it or to provide remedy to workers. We have a situation, are the suppliers, so the factories on the ground, are they going to be listening to the Chinese government of what they were going to do? Or are they going to be listening to fashion industry? They're going to be listening to the Chinese government. And due to that lack of leverage, that lack of control, the only way that companies can make sure that they're having no links to these forced labor is to completely exit the region, to make sure their cotton, their yarn, and their fabric does not come from the region, and to make sure they're not in relationships with any suppliers, which are indirectly or directly linked to the region. That is the only thing they can do. Thank you. Thanks so much, Sorry, That's uh, extremely helpful explanation. Just wanted to, uh, to say that one of our participants um, actually just said that they left, they le had to leave the uh, event for a weekly Uyghur demonstration in Hampstead in London outside the Volkswagen showrooms. So just a reminder that although we're talking about cotton today and garments, this is such a vast system that it en encompasses many, many industries. Um, uh, so while that is our focus today, I just wanna, point out that uh, there are numerous, numerous other industries that are implicated. Um, so, um, Mr. Glucksman, I'd, I'd like to ask you another, another question that comes up pretty often. Um, a common allegation or question uh, directed towards the movement to end forced labor in the Uyghur region is that it exists in some way solely to represent American interests, um, perhaps also because the American government has been one of the most vocal governments on this issue. Um, but as a member of the European Parliament, what's your response to, uh, what's your response to this uh, assumption or allegation? I mean, is it American interest to uh, stop slavery and to fight for people that uh, park in concentration camps and used as slave? Is it an American interest or is it a human interest? And if we Europeans define this as a, an American interest and not a European interest too, 
then I'm really ashamed to be European. If it's not in my interest to know that my shirt and my pulley and my shoe is not built by concentration camps, prisoners and slaves, then who am I as a European? So I don't think it's American interest and I don't care actually about American interest. I don't care about uh, uh, why the American government took this decision or this de or that decision. The only thing I'm caring about is these people in concentration camps. The only thing I'm caring about is that I am not contributing to a crime against humanity by buying a shirt to my kid or by buying a shoe to, to myself or my wife. That's the, that's the thing I care about. And this is a human interest. It's not an American interest or a European interest. And when we speak about, uh, about interests, because it, of course, when you speak about politics and when you speak about diplomacy, interests have to be taken account. I'm not a crazy utopist. Yes, I know that countries do things out of interest. So what I'm trying to tell European leaders is, do you really believe that being weak in front of such a regime do you really believe that it's in European interest? Do you think that allowing such a system based on slavery, a mix between the wars of capitalism and the wars of communistic repression system, do you think that allowing this system to grow without being checked or contained is in your interest as European? Don't you think that one day you will pay your weakness and your compromissions and your abandon of your own principles and values. So I don't think it's an American interest. I think it is, first it's the interest of people who are parked in concentration camps. And second, it's the interest of any form of human being. And it's my selfish interest, my selfish interest as a consumer, as a person who is a believing in some principles not to be part of this scheme of crimes, not to be taken hostage by, by this uh, globalization process and by uh, this uh, regime in China parking people in concentration camps. Because, I mean, as a, as a European especially, I've been raised with the idea that this world, concentration camp, was part of our history and that it should never come back again to haunt us. And now what we are learning is that, in fact, it's a 21st century war, thanks to the Chinese regime. And if we don't believe it's in our interest to defend these people and to fight against the brands that are using them, exploiting them, making money out of their reduction to slavery, then, I mean, we might have interest I don't understand. But that's not the Europe I want. So I think it's our common interest. And whether American government took this decision or that decision for this or that reason is not my problem. The only thing I'm judging a decision about is, does it help people parked in concentration camp or does it harm them? And I'm sure that having a hard position on this, being strong on principle, it's helping those who are in camps. Because at the end of the day, that's the only way we have to be understood by the Chinese authorities and to be taken seriously by the Chinese authorities when we raise the Uyghur issue. It's not by having a nice diplomatic tone in a four hours meeting 
and waiting for the Chinese official to go to pee and for in order to raise with a slow voice and a lot of politeness the word Uyghur that we will achieve something. And if that's Europe, then that's not my interest to have a, a Europe like that. So I don't care if it's American interest. I only care about Uyghur's interest in this case. Thank you, Mr. Glucksman. That's very powerfully said. Um, and um, I think what a, lo a lot of people are wondering as we're talking about all these mechanisms to um, address this issue is what does what does success look like? What uh, in a kind of realistic best case scenario, how how could this lead to the situation resolving? Um, and what what might that resolution look like? Rahima, I'd, I'd like to direct this question to you as uh, perhaps perhaps you can you can help us understand uh, where where this could go um, in if 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 we keep the pressure up in the in the coming years. Well, um, it's a very important question, and uh, I know this campaign is one of many, a uh, part of one of many campaigns that I am uh, taking part in. I know the coalition uh, that we are calling uh, for the brands to move out of the region, as Chloe already explained. But we also know just uh, for all the brands moving out of region itself, it doesn't mean that that can, uh, uh, you know, the situation can improve because the risk is um, because the Uyghurs are already enslaved. So Uyghur people has no right um, on the current uh, CCP government. So um, that when the, uh, if, for example, if the factory moved out from the region to another uh, province, that's uh, simply they can move the workforce uh, because they, these people are slaves. They have no right to um, agree or disagree. And uh, so that is not the uh, complete solution. But I agree that uh, it will have a huge impact. Uh, of course, for any campaign, you need to have step-by-step -step solution. And that is one of the very important steps. Uh, but for me to see uh, the campaign uh, long-term success is that closure all the camps, release all the prisoners, restoration constitutionally guaranteed religious cultural freedoms and stop forced labor, sterilization, organ harvesting, family separation, allow contact with families. For example, I cannot even contact my family. My family can dare not contact me. I don't know what happened to them for the last four years. I'm not the only person. There are 90% Uyghurs living abroad, living exile, in exile. We're all suffering. And the people in the Uyghur region, in East Turkestan, they are suffering. I cannot imagine and um, you know, they always have hopes. I know they always think America or Europe or, you know, the, uh, these countries gonna rescue us one day. But it's been almost four years now, four years, a long, long time. And I do really want to see there is some kind of breakthrough, you know, through all the campaigns. Um, you know, we need to, uh, of course, we are very, very upset about the government, but also as individuals, 
how much we we done so far. We need grassroots level of uh, pressure, uh, worldwide pressure. Make the campaign like anti-apartheid, uh, the the very very uh, big grassroots anti-apartheid campaign. In that way, I think maybe we can see some changes. So thank you for the, for that for that question. Thank you, Rahima, and we all really, 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 really hope for that breakthrough as well, um, and hope that the coalition uh, comes to help helps bring us to that breakthrough. Um, speaking of uh, grassroots initiatives, uh, Johar, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about how the public can get involved. How can our um, uh, participants today leave this? Uh, event with an actionable item to 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 do and 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 contribute to ending the system of forced labor um today i'm speaking here as a member of a worker rights consortium but also i'm speaking as a member of Uyghur community um like uh, Ms. rahim mentioned earlier majority of the Uyghurs overseas have family members are directly affected in this matter and <clears throat> excuse me, the Uyghur communities have been calling for changes and for help for years, and it is a, it is not a new issue at all. I started my uh, advocacy work for my family at the age of nineteen, and at that point, no one even knew who the Uyghurs were, and I felt really powerless, helpless, like no one would pay attention to what my family and my community's traumatic experiences because people simply didn't know we existed or didn't believe we were suffering. Or to be accurate, um, up to this day, we're still suffering from uh, such severe human rights abuses. And that is why I believe it is so important uh, for people to support the Uyghur community in the diaspora and show them you're here for them, you're informed about the situation and willing to help and take lead um, from Uyghur groups, from people who are the most uh, directly affected um, by what is happening in the Uyghur region. And there have been very um, inspiring mobilizations from students, influencers, advocates, um, politicians, and, and, con and consumers around the world that have uh, learned about this crisis are, are, and, and they're uniting together to hold brands accountable. One example is this week, um, there was a campaign launched by uh, students advocates and influencers that are asking brands such as Zara to sign the call to action. And the week of uh, action is happening right now at this moment. And this webinar is also part of this week of action. It is really great that uh, you all are here and you're engaged and you're learning more. Um, you can actually learn more of this week of action at forcelaborfashion.org. Um, I think it was listed in the chat, chat section. If people um, are willing to learn more about the uh, call to action and forced labor crisis in general, you can also visit nuigurforcelabor.org where you can learn what has been happening, what has been done on this matter, what can be done on this matter, and more information about the call to action terms. Um, so the public needs to mobilize the port of the call to action and make sure that um, we shouldn't be taking anything less um, Anything short of uh, committing to the elements of the call to action is not enough to make sure that 
uh, brands and retailers are not complicit in this crisis. Um, so consumers, members of public, they need to rally around this call to action and they need to uh, take lead from Uyghur communities and basically respect that um, that the uh, respect that take stock of the immense uh, immense work and advocacy that has gone into this. And a lot of people have come forward with their uh, stories at great risk to themselves and families. Um, we're speaking here today may create a great risk for our own family members. And I really would like people to um, to to take their time to learn more on this issue and to acknowledge it and and to take actions. Thank you so much, Johar. Um, and we are immensely grateful for, for your participation in the panel today and, and for all our panelists um, speaking today. Now our expert panel answers some of the Freedom United community's questions on Uyghur forced labor. And what is the UN doing on this? Well, actually the UN is not doing anything on this. Uh, because of uh, one simple reason is uh, China is part of the Security Council, has a veto right. Same happens with Russia, which is actually uh, that is actually supporting uh, China. You have every year a letter signed by a huge number of countries in the UN, even uh, uh, congratulating China with its uh, uh, Uyghur policy which is called uh, policy against radicalization. So it's de-radicalization de policies. And the funny thing, I mean, it's actually uh, not funny at all, and you want to cry when you see that, but or shout, is that many countries that uh, label themselves as Muslims uh, support the China uh, crackdown on Uyghurs. Uh, you have uh, countries like Pakistan organizing, for instance, state demonstrations in the streets uh, against uh, French cartoonists and uh, supporting officially uh, the crackdown of Uyghurs and the fact that you can go to concentration camp because you read Koran or because you wish your family uh, a happy uh, eye. So you have a, an abeyance of hypocrisy and nothing will come out from the UN, unfortunately. So. That's why it's so important to have a European position on this that's quite strong, because you have a huge silence around the world. And you know that uh, huge crimes, in order to happen, they need huge silence. And this silence is enable, enabling the, the criminals. And that's why we have to break it. And what you are doing today and what our friends, Uyghur friends, speaking tonight are so important for us because these voices need to be heard and we need to do everything we can to make people hear them, listen to the testimonies. People are speaking where in the camps. I just spoke to a woman who was one year and a half in a camp and she wants to speak, but the question is, are we able to listen? And, and that's where the effort should be also, is to make sure that everybody knows what's happening there. And that's why these kind of campaigns are also so important. And second thing I would like to add then, why is it so important? It's, it's because we all feel powerless. Yes, it's big China and it's a huge region, but we could do something as Europe or as US. 
because China needs us as much as we need them. And, and the second thing is, as human beings, uh, witnessing these horrors, listening to these testimonies, we think we, we are powerless, yes? And we can have a fatalistic approach. But in fact, it's not true. If you tag Zara on Instagram, it can mean nothing. I mean, you, you can have the impression that it's even ridiculous uh, as a small action. But if everybody does that, if we are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands doing so, then we will have power. And we will have power on Zara. And we will have power on people who are supposed to lead our institutions, democratic institutions, and we want our votes. So let's make it an issue. President of France, Chancellor of Germany, President of Commission of Europe, they don't want it to be an issue. Okay, so let's make it an issue in public opinion. And then it will become an issue in diplomatic terms because they care about what we have to say, even if they don't care about Uyghurs in camps. And, and this is why I think that these kind of campaigns are so important and that you should never think that what you are doing, even if it's small, is useless. Everything has a purpose in this kind of fight. Thank you, Mr. Glucksman. Uh, we have another question here that I'd like to ask Rahima. Uh, since you have, you've spoken a lot to the media um, about this issue and shared your story um, a lot um, on the radio, TV, um, somebody's asking if, if the media is part of the problem. Is part of the problem that the media is not providing enough coverage on the issue? Um, what would you say to that? Well, part of the problem is um, not just the media, as I said. Media, of course, is a problem. I agree with that. Um, there's also one of the reasons that, uh, you know, the reporters that I have uh, spoken to uh, time and time again, and uh, basically because they couldn't report from the region and they've been sourcing any kind of news stories, anything that is new. That's what they're interested. But uh, whatever we have, most of the information has been reported. But the, the issue is we couldn't get enough information out of the region. That is one of the major, major problems in the, in the end. And also we need to, as every um, citizen in the world, that we need to make that effort as well. I find it a uh, um, waste of time about the what aboutism. You know, people always talk about what about Palestine? What about Kashmir? What about this? We are in this panel, we are talking about the Uyghur issue. So if you have other issues, then you can organize another panel, then maybe we can talk about that as well. So I think when you have this kind of what aboutism, then you you ended up you doing nothing. So I think we just have to try. Uh, I mean, try our best uh, rather than wasting time to criticize here and there. But how we can make a difference? How we can make a change? You know. So that that is the important thing uh, that we we have to do. I agree with you. The the uh, their uh, coverage is not enough. When you compare the scale of what is happening there, as uh, sadly, I know a lot of journalists uh, approach me asking, is there any new development? 
is there any any new stories we 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 want to cover? Can we want to cover stories about forced labor? Do you have any information, any uh, kind of um, evidence about this PPE? Is there any way you can you can you can find this? This is the problem. The problem is China because they control the region completely, and people cannot openly speak about it. Journalists couldn't go in, 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 in there. And this is, I believe, is a fundamental problem here. And maybe other people, if they disagree with me, maybe they can add uh, their opinion on this. Thank you, Rahima. I think this leads very nicely onto another question from our audience here. Um, perhaps, perhaps Johar, you could speak on this, um, but anybody feel free to jump in. Uh, so with the current situation in the Uyghur region and how closed it is, how are, how are we getting the information that we're hearing today and, and how can we trust that it's accurate um, given, given the, the, the closed nature of, of the way the Chinese government has organized the region? Um, indeed, it is extremely difficult to get information out of the region. It is even hard for me to get information out from my own family members. Um, so uh, I understand why people have such questions. Um, but um, Uyghur people uh, have been finding creative ways to get the information out. Um, and um, and, and uh, with with the researchers and experts' help uh, by doing research researches uh, in the region and getting um, uh, 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 analyzing uh, from from Chinese government data and just a few months ago Chinese government has released their own white papers stating um, that over 1.29 million per uh, uh, Uyghur people per year have been passing through uh, vocational training. Uh, so uh, with experts analyzing uh, government data like this and leaked go uh, Chinese government um, uh, papers and with a satellite imager uh, imagery analysis and also testimonies from survivors, from family members of uh, people who have been detained in camps with those information, um, uh, that's how, how how we got uh, how how we are learning about what is happening in the Uyghur region. And also, uh, I started um, learning uh, before before um, before I joined WRC. I had to gather information from TikTok and Chinese social media apps because that's where where people were able to release videos of um, of their detained family members. Um, Unfortunately, there, the ways are limited, but uh, we have mounting evidence that can prove um, the, uh, the legitimacy of the crisis. Thank you, Johar, that's extremely helpful. Um, another question that I think uh, Chloe might be able to answer well, um, is it possible to set up a trading mark for products that indicates slave-free products, um, for example, on the garments that we buy? Yeah, really interesting question and something we hear a lot actually about other products from around the world, for example, cocoa from West Africa and so on. It's very, very difficult to do so um, because to be able to say with that guarantee this is a slave-free product, uh, forced labour and child labour is so prevalent that really that requires very significant reassurances what I would suggest is to flip it over and to put the responsibility on the businesses. Um, so what we are, for example, calling for is 
businesses to commit to the call to action. That is how they can provide that reassurance to all of us as consumers, NGOs and others that they are taking all credible steps within their control to be to ensure their supply chains are not linked to forced labour of Uyghurs. In addition to that, if we speak a bit more broadly as well, we as Anti-Slavery International are calling for laws which would make companies legally responsible to take all steps within their supply chain to prevent human rights abuses. This will be absolutely fundamental for Uyghur forced labour as well as other forced labour issues. And um, I'm sure Mr. Glucksen might want to have a word there because he's working very actively on this agenda to get it, the EU law um, to this front introduced. We're also calling for laws, laws in the UK and the EU that would ban the imports of goods produced with uh, Uyghur forced labour. And these steps together would be really, really important to, in order to move towards that slave-free guarantee that you might look for from a trademark. But really, we need to put the emphasis on the responsibility of the brands and retailers to take all the action they can. Do you want to jump in there, Mr. Glucksmann? Yeah, well, it's pleasure. I mean, uh, I mean, the global world as it is now is a pyramid of irresponsibility. Basically, the most powerful among us, like the uh, uh, stakeholders of, of uh, big multinational companies and uh, the CEOs of, uh, of, of brands like uh, Zara or Nike, they have they are making lots of money out of a system in which they can avoid any form of responsibility. So the idea of due diligence is very simple, is to put back responsibility in this pyramid of irresponsibility. And the idea is that, well, you own a brand, you make money out of a value chain, then you will be responsible for the entirety of your value chain. And if there is slavery in your value chain, then you have to respond to justice. And that's the only way we can actually achieve a change and make sure there is no slavery in, in, in today's things we are buying. Because if we just count on campaigns and, 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 and on responsibility of brands, it will be an endless fight. What we need is legislations. I mean, we have institutions for that. And, and we need to pass this. That will be a revolution in terms of uh, how the world is shaped today. But we need to pass this legislation at a European level so that there is an impact on the global market. And so that at the end of the day, if Zara has uh, slaves working on their clothes, then Zara will be responsible for it, even if it's under a supplier like Wafu. And that's, that's the only solution we have, legally speaking, to, to put an end to this. And to make sure that when we buy a shirt, we are not co-responsible or complice of uh, a complice of a, of a crime against humanity, because that's the situation now. If I want to go to Zara and I buy a shirt, but what, what am I doing actually? I'm buying a shirt in which slavery is part of the, the production system. So what does it mean? And the only way to respond to that is to have this due diligence legislation and to make sure that responsibility is back. And, and for this to happen, because of the lobbying powers that oppose this kind of legislation, of course, we need public involvement. Because if the debate is just in this parliament, in this, in this room, honestly, I have much more powerful people than me that will fight against it. 
But if we have public attention, and if consumers make their voice heard, if citizens make their voice heard, then then we have a chance to to push for that because it's it's fitting also the change of attitude of of consumers. They don't want to be part of crimes. They don't want to destroy the environment by by putting uh, twenty five dollars or forty dollars in a shirt. They, they they want to have a, an explanation on how this is free from slavery, how this is respecting some rights uh, when it's produced. So I think that that's that's really a fight that we should all unite our strengths behind it because it's it's a it's a possibility to actually show that we can do something about this world. Thank you, Mr. Glucksman. Um, an, an interesting question has come in that that we get pretty often actually is um, people expressing deep concern and horror of what is going on, but wondering what the alternative is. Uh, so this person is, says, I'm not for the horrific working conditions in some part of the parts of the world, but aren't they better than more horrific options, such as starvation if there is no work? W would um, one of you like to jump in and answer that question? <laughs> it looks like I can say something, uh, maybe. Um... Thanks, Rahima. <laughs> yes, yeah, starvation is 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 extremely uh, very uh, sad situation, of course, uh, you know. Um, but when someone, when your liberty is completely taken away from you, I think that is uh, worse than um, starvation. From my own opinion, this is just my opinion. Of course, you know, is a basic. Uh, you know, for human or to be able to um, have enough food is is extremely very basic thing. But um, a regime locking up uh, millions of people and uh, uh, chain them, shackle them, humiliate them, torture them, and women being raped sterilized this is also very horrific thank you Rahima. i think that answers um that question perfectly unless anybody else wants to chime in on that can i just say one thing of course. i will be sure as well uh we are not speaking about uh uh poor people that are offered the choice of either working in this horrific condition or die out of hunger. This is political. This is not connected to uh, uh, underdevelopment. This is not even connected to the absence of social rights. This is political. This is a crime against humanity organized by a, a state, a very powerful and developed state. This is the will to reduce the people, millions, the people of millions of individuals into slavery. So this is not like, for instance, when we say in an underdeveloped country, uh, you have the choice between working in horrific conditions or die out of, of, of hunger. No, this is a, a region that could be rich and that's reduced to slavery 
because of political will, of political decisions by the state of China and by the Chinese Communist Party. So this is a different topic. And this is a crime against humanity we are speaking about that's, that's, that could be stopped and that could be stopped any second by those who are perpetrating it. to our formidable guests for speaking to us about the vast system of Uyghur forced labour and how activists, campaigners and global civil society are working to address it. Freedom United is proud of being one of the first civil society organisations to launch a public-facing campaign on Uyghur forced labour. To date, we've amassed over 87,000 petition signatures from around the world and thousands more actions taken by the Freedom United community. In June 2022, the Uyghur Forced Labour Prevention Act came into effect in the US, a significant piece of legislation that means companies will no longer be able to sell products made with Uyghur Forced Labour in the US. There's so much you can do to keep holding the fashion industry accountable and call for change. Head to our free Uyghurs campaign page at freedomunited.org forward slash advocate and write directly to Urban Outfitters, Zara, Nike and Uniqlo. Thanks everyone and stay tuned for the next episode. <laughs> <laughs>